So in 1972, John Baldessari took a series of photographs of green beans, and he asked people to choose one green bean from the lineup, and then he would move that special green bean to the next round. And he keeps repeating this until the best green bean is picked out of the bunch. And so I'm going to ask you guys, if you guys had to choose a green bean, which one would you choose? I'm going to give you a couple seconds. You can go ahead and pick one. You'll be making an aesthetic value judgment. In that split second, you're deciding that this one green bean has more value than the others. And so did you choose the smiley one? Did you choose the bendy one, the crunchiest looking one? Um, and I wonder if you could describe how you made that choice. And so part of my job is to make intuitive judgments like that all the time. Uh, I spend half my time teaching architecture and morphology at Pratt Institute, and I spend my other half in a tiny design studio called CWT. Uh, CW is me, and T is my wife, Taylor, and it's just the two of us, and we design lots of different things. Uh, we sometimes design buildings like this, uh, sometimes ca custom fabrication machines like this. Uh, sometimes we write software, uh, like this dead simple navigation app. Uh, and we also design mass-produced products, like this pen that's designed to last for a really, really long time. Uh, we also make weird art products, like this single-use launch clock, which I won't explain what it is right now. Uh, but it's live on Kickstarter right now. Uh, so if everyone can get out their phones and go to kickstarter.com. I'm just joking. That's not what I'm here to talk about. Uh, I'm here to talk about the future of our design process. And so in my practice, and probably yours too, computers are indispensable tools. We click, zoom, pan a million times, and we're just moving thousands of points on the screen, and we design things that embody a ton of aesthetic value judgments. And so every click on the screen is an attempt to translate your intuition into hard numbers in a computer. And so that's, you know, that's how most of us design today. Uh, in the near future, we're going to use computers to that, and they're going to take over parts of our design process that we thought were sacred and only reserved for professional human designers. So not so long ago, we probably all remember, photography and filmmaking were available only to a few people. And photographers spent years and their entire lifetimes perfecting that craft. But today, 2.7 billion people have cameras in their pockets. You guys all do. And it's easier and better than anything we had 10 years ago. And so the same thing is going to happen to design tools. Um, so if not already, soon, your ability to master a piece of design software is not going to have much value. And so I'm going to present three ingredients, generative design, neural networks, and natural language processing, which are going to merge to change how we think about design. So let's start with ingredient number one, generative design. I'm talking about performance-based generative design, which I'll explain. So this is a pr process that runs thousands of simulations in the cloud, and it can generate new designs seemingly out of thin air. It just like does it. And it's awesome. It's available right now. And this ingredient alone should probably change the way you guys think about design. And so most generative design uses evolutionary algorithms. It's a design process that works a lot like evolution in nature. Um, in 2004, NASA really needed a high-performance antenna to communicate between satellites and Earth. And so they used one of the first examples of an evolutionary algorithm to generate a new design 
through a large population of random mutant antennas, and then uh, they would test those antennas virtually over and over. And so that's what you're seeing here. The algorithm is testing and generating thousands of mutations to choose the best performing designs, and then take them, breed them, generate another population, and on and on, until they reach a final super high performing design. And so this is the outcome of that process. Humans have been designing antennas long before this, but we suck at it because we have, we're biased. We have like an image of what an antenna wants to be. Um, and so, yeah, humans would have never designed an antenna like this because it's just too weird looking. It just is not something we can imagine. But this tiny two and a half centimeter antenna is so efficient, it can send and receive data from 35,000 kilometers away. That's about the distance between Amsterdam and New York times six. What's really exciting is that this evolutionary approach to design is actually available right now to normal designers like me, like some of you guys in here. Um, I've been beta testing Autodesk General Design for a while, and it's being released as part of Fusion 360 Ultimate. And I don't get paid to say this, but I can honestly say it has completely changed how I think about design. And I want to show you what it looks like to design an AGG. Uh, but first, I have to show you this bike stem that I designed in 2009. Uh, at the time, I wasn't thinking about aerodynamics or performance, obviously. It's chunky, it's heavy, it's just something that I wanted. Um, but I designed this chunk of aluminum the way most of us probably design. You're just clicking on the screen, tweaking dimensions over and over. But with performance-based generative design, instead of translating intuition into clicks on the screen, you can define uh, performance criteria and constraints, and the software evolves new bike stems. So I'm going to show you what that looks like. So first, I start with a set of ports. These are parts that you can think of like anchors of the design. So these are parts that I need. So in the case of a bike stem, you need the part that hangs onto the handlebars. You need the part that connects to the fork. So I draw those manually, and I enter those. And then I have my obstacles. So these are areas that I don't want any material to show up. And then I enter the forces that I need the bike stem to withstand. And that's it. And now I just hit go. There's like a go button. And then so the algorithm just generates a random blob. And no joke, it's just like an oversized blob. Doesn't matter what it is. Then it runs a stress test based on the forces that I set up earlier. Then it removes unnecessary materials, stress tests, removes stress tests, on and on and on, really fast. And if it finds a spot that's too weak, it'll just shove some more material back in. If it finds an area with too much material again, it'll just carve some material again. And it does this over and over thousands of times. And so today, we have tons of computing power. You can repeat this process really quickly with hundreds of different force scenarios and material constraints. And so here's one iteration that I picked out to 3D print. A giant, weird blob turns into this. I find that so amazing. And so with generative design, we can shrink a few million years of evolution into just a few minutes. And this approach is called topology optimization. It's the ultimate embodiment of form follows force. And that's what we can do today. It's amazing. Airplane components, bike components, car parts, custom brackets, and even bridges have been generated and 3D printed. And this is coming to Amsterdam this year. This year, 2018. 
That's amazing. So journal design is really good for engineering. If you can quantify your inputs and constraints, you can quickly generate amazing results. But it falls short when it comes to fuzzy inputs like aesthetic value judgments. And that's where ingredient number two comes in. So things are going to get really interesting with, when performance-based generative design gets combined with neural networks. So neural networks are artificial neurons. They're designed to do machine learning tasks. And they're a game changer because they can be trained on fuzzy values. Um, so if I show it enough things that I like, uh, a neural network can make an aesthetic value judgment on my behalf. And it can judge things really fast, a million times, and never complain. So imagine training a neural network with thousands of objects. And they're each labeled to identify whether it's a chair or not. This neural network will learn what a chair is, or the essence of a chair. And so in the same way that you can teach that neural network what a chair is, you can also teach it what types of chairs you like. So you show it another 1,000 chairs, thousand, a few thousands of chairs, and each one labeled like ugly chair, comfy, boring, spicy, whatever you want. So when you say spicy chair, it knows what you're talking about. So we can have a generative neural network spitting out thousands of chair designs, and then we can have a discriminating neural network that goes through each chair that it generates and decides whether it's good or not based on your aesthetic value judgments. So an adversarial network like this can go at it for a few thousand iterations and then bring you brand new chair designs. And it could design things based on fuzzy values like beauty or warmth, or it can do styles like retro or minimal, things that we couldn't do before. And so this type of machine learning design process is coming really soon. And this hypothetical chair scenario that I, I just like threw out there, it's just, uh, it's just the tip of the iceberg, it's just a little bit. And so in, in the future, instead of arguing with your boss about whether a design is going to succeed or fail in the real world, algorithms will just collect vast amounts of data, feed them back into the design process, and then keep doing that automatically. No more arguing with human bosses. So just imagine neural networks tapping into Amazon product reviews to improve designs. That's probably not very far off if it hasn't already happened already. And that's the lowest hanging fruit. So here's ingredient number three, natural language processing. Uh, it's improving really quickly. And soon we'll have meaningful conversations with machines about design. You guys probably all saw the Google duplex demo. So I don't have to convince you about that. So you, imagine if you could describe in plain words what kinds of designs you want from the computer. Or imagine if you could direct the machine to a super boring, esoteric document like this one. I had to read this whole thing when I was setting up my bike stem in AGD. But in the future, the machine will read it. It'll parse the necessary data, generate thousands of bike stem designs, and then pick out the best ones based on your aesthetic value judgment, your style. So with these three ingredients, the next generation of tools will bring everyone 100 steps closer to design. No more software skills necessary. You'll just swipe left or right to choose designs that are generated by a machine. So this, you know, these three ingredients, they're going to change the design industry in, the, in ways that we can't see yet. But I have a few predictions 
among many, but I just want to present a few. So design sampling is going to become a thing. We'll copy, paste, mix, and filter designs like how we treat digital media today. And existing designs will just become fodder for remixes and mashups. So you'll be able to generate new designs based on a thing, like an essence of a thing, like a phone, and then combine it with something like the aesthetics of like Ram Koolhaas or like Mad Max or Legos, whatever you want. Number two, <laughs> design is going to get creepy. A bot could scrape the internet for existing designs, generate new products based on your shopping habits, your likes, your dislikes, your friend be friend's behaviors, et cetera. And imagine, so, you know, imagine if you saw an ad today on your phone, you're like hanging on the internet, you see an ad for design for something that you sketched this morning, because the bot's been following you, and so whatever inspired you to draw that sketch this morning, the bot also got inspired, and it just went ahead and designed something for you. Number three, the robots are coming, and they are going to take your job. And I'm talking about your super creative design job, the ones that you think and we think are all untouchable by machines. Let's say you're the boss. You want to hire a new designer. You could hire a human designer who has an ego, neuroses, asks for pay raises every six months. Or you could rent a neural network that's trained on petabytes of, your, of data based on your favorite designer. And that designer neural network will never complain, generate awesome designs 24-7. And number four, design will get weaponized. So let's say if Amazon wants to influence the next election, which they might want to do, they could generate thousands of random products. And each time someone buys a product from them, they could track that person's behavior online and they could see how that product changed that person's political stance. So people, without knowing it, they would be involved in a machine learning loop to train Amazon's neural networks to generate products that swing an election. So that might sound like a Black Mirror episode, but I should remind you that there are plenty of ways that design gets weaponized today. So for example, Facebook's original design intention to show you more stuff in your feed of stuff that you like, you know, that was exploited plenty of ways to spread fake news and swing the US election. So that all might sound exciting to you because they're just tools and the good guys will use good tools to do good things, the bad guys will do bad things with the tools, and that's just the nature of tools and technology. But there are problems with generative design and those ingredients, even if you're a good guy trying to do good things. Because the algorithms we interact with every day are becoming more frequent and more intimate, more complex to understand. And I might have lost you when I was talking about neural networks, but you're not alone. Even software developers often don't understand how other parts of their software work. Depending on black boxes to output design comes with a bunch of new problems. Number one, generative design in a black box generates homogeneous output. It's actually difficult to generate stuff that doesn't look like this. All the output looks like this because it only knows how to consider forces, materials, and manufacturing constraints. And what about, you know, you could think about texture, heat gain, uh, you know, wind drag, 
But those will probably, you know, those will probably become inputs because those are easy to quantify. But the power to do that, the power to put those inputs into the software are in the hands of a few engineers. We actually can't see what's happening under the hood. So even if you think something isn't right with the software, you can just hope that the next software update addresses that problem or introduces a new input. So problem number two. Neural networks are really closely tied to data, and the data always seems right. There's a long list of stories about the misuse of data, but there's one that I like to tell because it's one that happened long before big data became a thing. In 1998, Burton, the snowboard company, they noticed that their helmet sales in Japan were dismal. And that was weird because Japan is the third largest snowboarding market in the world. And so when they finally got around to asking a few Japanese snowboarders why they didn't like their helmets, they said, no, we like the designs. They're just really painful to wear. And that tiny insight led to the largest database of Asian head scans. Because simply, humans have different shaped heads. Today, we have helmets, sunglasses, goggles that are all designed to have Asian fit versions. And Asian fit eyewear alone is a $35 billion industry today. And so before 1998, we were using measurements taken from US Air Force pilots, a few of them, and we designed helmets for everyone based on that. And that was the industry standard. And we need, so we need to be really critical of the data that we use as neural networks become part of a designer's tool set. Because the whole world doesn't look like this guy. So how can we address some of these problems? Engineers would say we need better algorithms, we need more data, and we need more engineers. Well, in that scenario, the power, again, to, of design is going to be in the hands of a few engineers. If we want general design to be useful to humanity, we need to co-design with algorithms. You've probably heard of machine learning with humans in the loop. It's a thing where humans are essentially used to supervise training of neural networks because machines don't have common sense. So us humans, we're treated like crutches for a machine, like when a neural network stumbles and it can't tell if it's looking at a cat or a toaster. Humans step in, and we do what any two-year-old could do. And so I'm arguing that we need to use humans for more than just checks in the system. We need more inclusive loops. We need more mindful algorithms. I'd love to see designers become orchestrators of human-machine collaborations. We could direct people and algorithms to work together and exchange ideas. And for that to happen, we need to unblack box general design and the three ingredients. And this affects everyone. Whether you're a designer or not, we all need to understand what's happening in the box. So here are a few things we can do right now. And this is for everyone, regardless of your background. Number one, just learn machine learning and AI concepts. This is super important because you can actually unblack box some of this just by learning the concepts of it. So, you know, Google and Facebook are leading the way with machine learning, and they've open sourced all their work because they know it'll only improve if they show what's happening in the box so that people can build on top of it. So it's up to you to look inside that box. Engineers will continue to make tools for the sake of making tools, improving machine learning concepts, because that's what they do. And if we want to do good things with machine learning, we all have to get a handle on these concepts.
Uh, number two, this is also for everyone, uh, think about how general design and machine learning affects your field. Um, you know, what are the inputs to generating your work? Which parts will be taken over by machines? And what will be left for humans 10 years from now? Number three, this is for all the designers out there. The robots are coming. They are going to take your job. So you could wait for the takeover, or you could become a robot tamer. You should try using generative design software. It's super straightforward and easy to learn. If you use CAD software right now, it'll take you less than an hour to learn everything you need to use, know to start using it. So please join the conversation and steer it. I want to end with Memo Acton's work. This is titled Learning to See. It's a neural network that he trained on thousands of images of fire, just fire. So the machine is asked to recreate what it sees from the webcam. This is what it sees. This is, you know, it's beautiful and disturbing. And here's the same thing, but with images of the sea. Machines will only see what you train them to see. They will only learn things that you tell them to learn or teach them. But they will do things that you never told them to do. And they will make things that you never told them to make. Can machines make aesthetic value judgments? Yes. And us, we make aesthetic value judgments based on things we've seen. That green bean you chose in the beginning, you picked that based on an entire life's visual history. And machines aspire to do the same. And they're going to get there really soon. There's a time when photography seemed like magic. And people waited their whole life for a camera like this one to roll into town. Over the past 200 years, our interactions with technology have become more intimate and more frequent. And these days, we carry high-resolution cameras in our pockets with machine learning. Our design tools are evolving from machines that just remember what you did on a screen, just like remembering your clicks, to learning machines that, can, that we can talk to, and it can generate new designs and memorize and analyze everything that we're throwing at it. Machines are going to design things that we can't even imagine. So our role as a designers has to change. Designers will become conductors rather than composers, directors rather than actors, and air traffic control rather than pilots. Thanks.